We are in Genesis 40. You can find your way there. Now the reading from Psalm 69 would be quite understandable if it came right from Joseph's mouth. It wasn't. It was by David. But nonetheless, as we'll see, they shared a lot in common in the course of their lives. So... Um, that was appropriate as we look at this portion of Joseph's life. Let's hear the word of our God. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody of the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, officers who were with them in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please, tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told the dream to Joseph, and he said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream that there were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer 
did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Why don't we pray? Father, as we look at your scriptures this morning, I ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will, so that we might have spiritual wisdom and understanding. We ask this so that we might live a life worthy of you, pleasing you in every way, so that we may bear fruit in every good work, that we might grow in our knowledge of you, that we might be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might, so that we might have great patience and endurance and trials of all kinds, joyfully giving thanks to you. Thank you as well for qualifying us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Thank you for rescuing us from the dominion of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of your Son because you love him. Thank you for the redemption or forgiveness of sins that we have in him. It is in his name that we ask. Amen. Dreams. There's two words that dominate in English this text. Dungeons. Dreams. Let's talk about dreams for a little bit. We all have them, and what happens often is that they, they often express our subconscious fears. Um, sometimes they're not, maybe not as subconscious as we think they are. I remember as a kid, I had two repetitive dreams. These would come to me often as a child, and one was shortly after I went to see Jaws, and uh, that was that there was someone walking on this bridge way above the water, and for some reason, this giant shark was able to jump out of the water and keep going up toward the bridge, and eventually, don't know why I had that dream. Didn't go to the ocean very often as a child. Nonetheless, there it was. The other was similar to this, and maybe it was influenced by Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. I don't know. But uh, there was someone in a phone booth. Okay, now you have the scene in your head. Okay, but instead of it being birds, it was bats. And slowly the bats would cover this phone booth, and maybe some of you don't even know what a phone booth is anymore, but uh, <laughs> you young ones don't know. They used to close. You could be in there all by yourself. And, um, but anyway, it was, uh, they would completely obscure this. Our dreams change over time. I no longer have the dream about the shark and the bats. My dreams are a little bit different. I've shared some of those rather odd dreams with you in the past. And as Providence would have it, I had another strange dream last night, completely different. It had nothing to do with preaching. It was great. I showed up at work. And it was like Ligonier, but not like Ligonier. Okay? Because it wasn't like the, the really big phone room that I worked in uh, when I worked at Ligonier. It seemed more like a different kind of cubicle. But I had this great big overcoat, and I removed my overcoat, and all of a sudden my boss, who was never a woman, but in this instance she was a woman, I, she's fiddling with my shirt. And I'm like, what's going on? And she's buttoning my shirt because I had not buttoned my shirt. <laughs> it gets weirder. Because then we realize I'm not wearing pants. Okay, these, these dreams happen to us. We have these things, and they're very strange. They're odd. They're unusual. But in the ancient Near East, they were seen, generally speaking, as words from God. And so it was incumbent upon you to... I don't know how that dream could have been a word from God, but nonetheless, you know, you wanted to find someone who could help you interpret these dreams. And so um, throughout the ancient Near East, 
these different cultures would develop different methods for interpreting dreams. Some of them were more rigid than others, but they all basically developed some way to interpret these dreams because they thought they came from the mind of their God and they were important. Some people today still think dreams are very important. I was looking at it, and of course, you know, you have Sigmund Freud. The, the birth of, psycho- of modern psychology has seen an explosion in the, the different methods of how to interpret dreams, because Freud had his method of interpreting dreams, and then uh, Carl Jung, who was initially a disciple of his, but then took a different road in his, in his uh, formulations and theories, he had another different way of interpreting dreams, and then others who came after them also had these very different ways. You, if you went to the bookstore right now, you'd probably find 15 to 20 different books on how to interpret dreams. And you know what? You'd waste your money if you bought them, so don't go do that. <laughs> okay? Dreams. They point us to this uh, reality that God shapes our future in the present. This text is reminding us that God shapes our future in the present. So let's look at what's going on in the life of Joseph as he remains in this prison. We see, first of all, that God sustains us in order to serve others. Sort of seems odd, but this is what we see taking place in the life of Joseph, and it's instructive for us. Not only is it just what he did, but I think it is meant to speak to us as to how we are to respond in our trials. Trials exist partially for God to reveal what is in us. Now, he already knows what's in us. It's not like God saying, I wonder what's inside, Steve. Let's give a little trial and see what pops out. It's so that I know what's in me and so that you learn what's in you. So God will bring trials, will bring afflictions into our lives to reveal what is really inside our hearts so that we might know what is there. We see that Joseph, in this trial, has been unjustly sold into slavery by his brothers, betrayed by them. That being a slave in Egypt, he was unjustly accused and imprisoned. And we see this is the word that four times it keeps talking about how he's in prison, how he's in the dungeon, how he's in the pit. It uses a variety of words to convey what's going on, but all of them have the idea of the fact that he is confined, he is not free. Imagine, if you will, never being able to leave your house. For some of you, that might sound exciting for a little while. Okay, You might think, I don't have to worry about certain things. But if that was all you could do, was, or was to stay in your house, you would soon see the oppressiveness of what he experienced. Not only that, but he possibly also had chains upon his legs to bind his movements, and all he could do was stay in this dark, forbidden, foreboding rather, place. The focus that Moses has oddly enough, is not on Joseph's emotional state. I mean, right before this, we see we see how Jacob responds to the news that his son is dead. And we see, you know, Moses is not afraid of emotion. And in fact, later on in the story, we're going to see Joseph's emotions. But right now, the focus is not on how how he responded emotionally to this, whether self-pity, anger. We don't see any of that. But we see his character on display for us. 
As I was thinking about this, and keeping in mind the, the, the words, the phrases that were repeated in the previous chapter, the Lord was with him. Okay? This week, reading 1 Samuel, and there in chapter 18, reading this, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Interesting how their lives are parallel. How they initially start off in a very privileged state. Joseph being the, the favorite son of his father and receiving the coat with the long sleeves, which meant that he was a supervisor, not a menial worker. David, on the other hand, uh, being uh, Saul's armor bearer and musician who would, who would sing when the, when the king was downcast. He had an exalted position. He was made a leader of troops and would lead them out into victory and the people would sing his praises in the streets. Saul has his thousands and David has his tens of thousands. He had an exalted position. And yet, envy was at work in both of those men's lives by the other person. His brothers, Joseph's brothers, sell him into slavery and he goes into the pit, essentially. And David becomes the victim of Saul's envy and spends years in exile from Israel until eventually both of them are exalted. And so we see both of these, this, this pattern taking place in the lives of both of these men, and both of them point us to the reality of Christ and what He did for us and for our salvation, and the fact that He had the most exalted position of all, sitting next to His Father in heaven, and yet humbled Himself, becoming a servant, a slave, and be obedient even to the point of death, his humiliation taking place, and then eventually his exaltation. Joseph and David point us to the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ for his people. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, aren't we? Let's get back to Joseph. What happens here now is that there are two new prisoners that are placed specifically under the care of Joseph while he's in prison. And the first is the chief cupbearer, okay? And the second is the chief baker. So both of these men are men of relative prestige within the administration of Pharaoh. They had very important positions with him. You have to be able to trust these men, okay? What happens if your baker doesn't like you? If you're the king, he can poison you. What happens if your cupbearer doesn't like you? He can poison you if you're the king. And so the cupbearer in particular was a very influential and important position within the life of Egypt, just as it was with many other cultures. And so the cupbearer was often, oddly enough, a foreigner. We see this taking place with Nehemiah as well. He was a foreigner okay, to the Medes and the the Persians as a cupbearer. And often this took place precisely because as a foreigner, you're set apart from the normal political factions within the nation that would want to eliminate you or the king. So he's a foreigner, but it's very prestigious. It's a, he's a very, this is a very wealthy person. They were compensated well for, for the work the cupbearers were. But what happens is, unlike Joseph, these two men deserve to be put in prison. It says they offended the king, and the word that we find there is the word for sin. The word for missing the mark. The word for missing the path. They have in some way not just offended the king and, and sort of like, 
you know, saying something the king, the king didn't like, they actually did something wrong and became subject to the anger of the king. The king, Pharaoh, perhaps they plotted against him. We're not exactly sure what their crime was, and yet he tossed them into the prison, the same prison where Joseph was, and the chief of the guard, Potiphar, placed these two men under his care. And the text says that Joseph, sustained by God, begins to attend them. He served them faithfully. He was discharging his duties. We see no indication here again that Joseph was having a prolonged pity party about his state. He did not mope in his cell, but we see that he continued to be faithful in discharging the duties that were placed before him. And you know what? There's a part of me that can't even understand that. I've had some lousy things happen to me, but nothing like what happened to Joseph. My brothers didn't sell me for 20 shekels. I've never been enslaved. I've never been falsely, well, okay, I have been falsely accused of things, but not this. And I haven't been imprisoned. And yet here we find Joseph, in the midst of all of that injustice, being faithful This, as it says in the text, went on for some time. And it is then that these men have dreams. What's interesting about the Joseph narratives is that dreams always come in pairs. He had two dreams that he told his brothers. You know, these guys have two dreams. Pharaoh is going to have two dreams in the next chapter. They always come in twos in this particular instance anyway. So... What we notice, though, is that Joseph isn't just taking care of their needs. He's attentive to them as people. Precisely because he noticed that he saw that they were troubled. He noticed their distress. He, he asked them about why they, their, their faces and their hearts were downcast. Joseph didn't just say, it's breakfast time, here's your bowl. But he said, what's wrong? What's troubling you? And so we see that Joseph is concerned about their interests. He's not just mechanically going through the motions as he serves them there. He is an example of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so Joseph is able to faithfully serve and meaningfully serve in the midst of the prison because he has been comforted by God, which we know because the Lord was with him, was blessing him, and comforting him, standing with him in the midst of his suffering. And so Joseph, who has been comforted by God, is now able to comfort these men in the midst of their affliction and and invites them to tell him what is troubling their souls. Not just the fact of why they're in prison, but why now they are downcast, presumably more downcast than they normally would be. 
If I'm in prison, I'm probably downcast. Okay? They're even more so. His faith in God, the God of his fathers, was enabling him to do good to others. What often happens to to us in trials is that they distract us from the rest of life and they turn us in upon ourselves. So that all we really care about is our, you know, that, that perpetual pity party. We feel bad about how hard we have it. We mull over uh, all, all of the things that have been done wrong to us, and we're just the mopey dude. Okay, we're the grouchy guy. But that didn't happen in Joseph's life. His faith enabled him to stop looking at himself and to be able to love those people who were around him. These trials are intended not to distract us. Well, Satan intends them to do that. But these trials are intended to shape us. We're going to get more into that in a little while. But we see here that it is is the fear of the Lord, that same fear of God who prevented him from sinning with Potiphar's wife, that very same fear enables Joseph to obey those who were in authority above him with sincerity. He is a fulfillment of what we find in Colossians 3. Bondservants or slaves. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And note that earthly aspect, because he's about to mention later that those masters have a a master in heaven. Not by way of eye service, meaning just to make it look like you're busy. We've all had those jobs, haven't we? We look busy. We're not actually doing our job, but we're just creating a stir, so it looks like we're busy. Eye service, okay? As people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And so Joseph reminds us that by the grace of God, it is possible for us in the midst of our hardship and service to have a very different way of serving. One that is with respect to God and therefore that is very sincere. It's not intended to please other people, but is intended particularly to please God. The gospel can do that in us. God can change that and can produce that in us. And so trials reveal our true character, but they also reveal the reality of God's sustaining grace even as we serve people. Second part of this that I see that is important to us to remember is that God is the one who determines the future. Okay, remember, these dreams were seen as a means for God to communicate with people. These different cultures, uh, you know, had developed these different methods of interpreting these dreams. Again, I have no idea how they would interpret my strange dream from last night. I guess they would say that I'm afraid of something being exposed. What? I don't know what it would be. But uh, there's some fear, a rational fear that I have. In Egypt in particular, we discuss, we've, archaeologists have discovered these dream interpretation books, and sometimes they'll have the hieroglyphics of the dream and then the interpretation. And so we know what, what happened here, but it was done specifically by professionals. Okay? You just didn't go to your buddy who had the dream book okay, that he bought at Barnes & Noble, and you kind of sat down together and said, okay, what happened? Okay, look. Oh, this means that. Okay, let's, next thing in the dream? Okay. They would go to the priests who would interpret the dreams out of these books. 
These men are grieved in part because they have no access to the priests. They cannot go to the professionals. They have no idea what the dream means. And so they, they feel that something important is being communicated to them, but they don't know what it is. It would be as if you got an urgent message from the most important person in your life, and you couldn't read it. You'd be very upset with your computer or your phone. Okay? So they're downcast. They're distressed at all of this. And Joseph says, Do not interpretations belong to God. Remember, his brothers mocked him as the Lord of dreams. Joseph is pointing these men to God as the true Lord of dreams. We know from Scripture that at times, in certain ways, uh, that God used dreams to communicate with His people. But what's interesting about those instances is that there was no manual that was needed. The dream was clear. And in the only case that the dream was not clear, what we see in Daniel, God provided an angel to interpret the dream for Daniel. Okay, so there was, there was no Israelite way of interpreting dreams. The, the interpretation, according to Joseph, came directly from God. It was unbelievers who didn't understand dreams. Okay? Joseph is used by God now to give interpretations for these two dreams. And it's sort of like almost setting you up. You can kind of see it happening. He hears the first one, that of the cupbearer, and it's good. You know, he's, he's got the, the grapes that have just come up and he's squeezing it into the cup and he gives the cup to Pharaoh. It's all going to end well. Pharaoh is going to lift up his head, which of course encourages the baker. What about my dream? Three days, same thing. This time, your head's going to be lifted up, but not in the way you want it. Yeah, it's sort of the, note, the irony that is within these two dreams. One is lifted up uh, to blessing. He's restored to his position. And one is lifted up in judgment. He's going to be killed. It is after the first dream that we also see Joseph pleading. Tells the cupbearer. Because remember... This is the guy who's going to be in the presence of Pharaoh. This is the guy who has an influential voice with Pharaoh. If there's someone in all of Egypt who can get him out of this mess, it's Pharaoh. And God has providentially placed Pharaoh's cupbearer in that prison and is about to providentially set him free. And so Joseph pleads with him, only remember me. In other words, get me out of here. He recognizes that God is at work in all of this. Israel needed to remember that their fate rested ultimately in the hands of God, not in the hands of any man. They were enslaved. Not because God was asleep that week. They were going to be set free. Not because of the will of a man, 
because of, but because of an act of God. And they're to remember that as they go into the promised land that, that God ultimately is in charge of their future and their destiny, that they're not to be overcome with fear even when diff- difficulty for, uh, faces them. They remember that the same God who gave the dream and set these men free, the same God who exalted Joseph, the same God who spoke to Moses, this same God is going to bring them into the promised land and bring them there safely. They needed to believe that. And this text is one of the things that Moses gave them for them to believe that. We as well need to remember that God controls the future. And He controls it for our ultimate good. We have a couple of graduates here today. God is in control of your future. Sometimes it feels like some faraway administrator in a college is in control of your future. Sometimes it feels like... um, You're a victim of circumstances and shifts and change, and sometimes you think that you're in control of your future. God is ultimately in control of your future. And that should bring us comfort. Um, Luckily, both of you have not graduated such that you're about to go into the job force. (laughs) Okay? It's, It's kind of scary out there. I I read about what's going on in Europe, and I'm a little concerned about all of that, but ultimately I have to remember God's in control. Not the prime ministers of foreign lands. God's in control of my future, of our future. It's in His hands, and He loves us because He gave His Son to save us from our sin so we can trust Him with our earthly future, just as much as we can trust Him with our eternal future. So we need to focus not on dreams or other signs, but to trust God to be our guide in the midst of our lives. Last part of this, even better, God works while we wait. Everything turned out just as Joseph said it would. The cupbearer gets exalted, The baker gets killed. All of this happened three days later, just as Joseph said, because Pharaoh had a birthday party. And instead of everyone giving gifts to Pharaoh, Pharaoh would give gifts to other people. And it was a time when he would bring in people and he would settle scores and give favors. It's almost like um, the very opening scene of the Godfather at the wedding. And everyone's coming to the Godfather with their problems. Everyone comes to Pharaoh sort of with their problems. He, he beckons, he summons these two men from the prison. One of them is, is restored to his position in the administration and the other has his head lifted up in a not so fun fashion. But what happens significantly here is that the cupbearer did not remember Joseph. It only been three days. But he was so excited. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He was so excited that he did not remember Joseph. He did not remember that Joseph Um, by Joseph's testimony, did not deserve to be where he was, he forgot about him. (sighs) Points us, I think, to the beginning of Exodus, foreshadowing what is to come, because there now arose a new king over Egypt, one who did not know Joseph, who had forgotten about Joseph. In a sense, history has forgotten 
about Joseph. I did, I did some, uh, some research on Egypt this week, and you know what? If you go to Wikipedia and you look at the history of Egypt, and I did that because it's brief, okay? There's no mention of Joseph. It's like he didn't exist. It's crazy. They didn't think him at all important. He's been forgotten by secular history just as much as he was forgotten by the cupbearer. What's going on here? Why doesn't God deliver Joseph? Doesn't God love and care for Joseph? We think he, he should because he continues to be with Joseph and continues to bless Joseph. Why isn't he giving him this blessing? Why isn't he getting him out of prison? That is an important thing for us to think about. Because it's not just what God does or doesn't do to Joseph, but it points to what God does and doesn't do to us. We are Joseph. We are the needy one who is afflicted, who needs God to show up. And God doesn't always show up in the way and at the the time that we want God to show up. Now, Joseph doesn't realize this, but God actually has set into motion that very process by which Joseph will be freed and even better, exalted. But Joseph doesn't know that. And Joseph has to wait. Okay, we know what's going to happen. Joseph doesn't. Just like our life. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what God is doing behind the scenes uh, you know, of, of our lives. We, we don't know. We have to wait to see what God is going to do. You know? when, when I watch a movie with Amy, she always asks me, you know, kind of, what's going to happen now? Like, watch the movie. She's the type of person who wants to go to the end of the book first to see how it ends and decides whether or not she wants to read it. We don't have that luxury in life. Well, I guess we do. We can go to Revelation and go, we're in the new heaven and new earth. It's good. But the point from point A to point B, okay? So you know the ending, right? You know the ending. You know it ends well, and it's a story worth, worth reading. It's a, story, it's a life worth living. But you don't know what's going to happen between now and then. And that's where it's hard for us, not knowing what happens between now and then. God is not ready to act, in part, because Joseph is not ready to be exalted yet. It is not time for Joseph to be exalted. Egypt doesn't need him yet. But they will. Joseph, his character is very strong, and yet, It needs more refinement. He's not ready yet. Last night we had the Eubankses over for uh, uh, for dinner, and uh, part of the conversation was about you know my my whole search process before I got here, that three and a half year trial in my life, in Amy's life, and thankfully the kids didn't know much about any of it, okay, and all of the ups and downs and all that, and, and what I have to kind of go. I wasn't ready yet to be the pastor of this particular congregation. Okay. There were things in me that still needed to change so that I could be a more suitable pastor for you. That's what it's like. 
Joseph was not yet ready to be exalted, so God waited. This is not about punishment. When you're waiting in your life for God to do, he's not punishing you. This is about maturity. Okay? Our sins have been paid for in full by Jesus Christ. Okay? But now he is disciplining you, as it says in Hebrews 12, so you might share in his holiness. And so these trials come not as punishment for your sin, which is one of the lies that Satan wants you to believe, but they come from the hand of a father who is training his child to become more like him. And those of us who have trained our children, we know how hard that is. And just because you are now an adult doesn't mean you're easy to train. We are hard to train. Even harder than our children. And so God is patient in dealing with us and disciplining us because He wants us to share in His righteousness. We see that it is precisely because of Christ's work for us, Him dying upon the cross in our place as our representative, that now Christ is doing His work in us, that reshaping of who we are, transforming us into His own likeness, that He might be the firstborn of many brothers. That's what's taking place. That's part of what's taking place in all of this. God is not ready to act yet because his brothers are not ready to repent yet. It's not just about Joseph. It's also about his brothers. That's part of why God puts that whole thing with Judah right before he starts talking about Joseph. We know his brother's still a mess. It's been about ten years. He hasn't had his, his kids haven't been married to Tamar yet. Judah has not yet come to a place of repentance yet. And so God is working among Joseph's brothers so that when they meet, they meet with him, they meet with him not with the eyes of envy, but now with the eyes of repentance. Forgive me. They're not there yet. So Joseph is not ready to be released yet. Okay? We think about this in terms of people who we want to see converted. We love them, and God doesn't do something. And sometimes it's because that person isn't ready yet. God is still putting all of those things together that will eventually bring that person to repentance. But they're not ready yet. God's not just waving a magic wand and all of it happens. He's bringing, about, bringing it about through space and time. And so part of what we learn from this is that redemption is not something that's incidental to history, but we see that it is central to history. It is central to God's purpose. And we catch that not only here, but when it talks about Jesus in Galatians, in the fullness of time, when the time was perfect, when the time was right, Jesus didn't come too early. He didn't come too late. And it's going to be the same thing when he returns. He's not going to come too early, and he's not going to come too late. He will come in the fullness of time at the right time. God does everything at the right time. 
I used to have this uh, quote by Tozer that you've got there in your notes hanging up at my cubicle at Ligonier because I needed to remember that all the time because my life was not where I wanted it to be in a number of ways. God never hurries. We wish he would. There are no deadlines against which he must work. Only to know this is to quiet our spirits and relax our nerves. Essentially, the Westminster Confession of Faith, or the catechisms, talk about that with respect to God's providence as well. It's meant to comfort us. God's working. Even if you can't see it, don't realize it. God is working. It is for your good. Okay. And when we, when we have this view of history, we, be, we can look at the things that have been done to us without bitterness. Israel, hey, you know, if, if my nation had been enslaved for hundreds of years, I'd be kind of bitter. I can understand the bitterness that happens within our own culture because of the slavery that took place here. I can understand the bitterness, but God warns them, uh, Israel, about this bitterness. Okay, They were not to be bitter about their slavery, but they were to see it as part of God's preparation for them. Some of you are single. Easy to get hard, bitter. Right now, this is a time of preparation. Think of my own marriage. I've joked here that, you know, Amy was waiting for me because I had all kinds of junk to, to, that God had to deal with so I could be ready to be married, okay? Well, Amy had stuff too. Not nearly as much as me, <laughs> okay? But she was waiting. God was waiting until both of us were ready, where his sanctifying work could take place to a sufficient degree that we two very different people didn't want to strangle each other on a daily basis. So we don't wake up one day mature. It's developed over time, and often it is developed through the midst of these trials. What we see is that God works while we wait. He's changing us before he changes our circumstances. Romans 8, 28, anybody? All things work for the good of those who love God and are called to his purposes. He's at work. He's making that which is bad into something good. But we're in mid-process. And mid-process stinks. But we have to trust that the end result will be good because we know the character of him who's doing it. We know, as Paul says later on, you know, God did not spare his own son. We have confidence of his love because of the cross of Jesus Christ. We see this from Isaiah 64. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. This God is unique. What's unique about this God? In part, who acts for those who wait for him. It's hard to wait. But when you're waiting for something important, 
in good, you find a way, don't you? God's grace is sufficient to help us to wait. But we're to work while we wait. We're we're also to do good as we trust God to change our circumstances. He will change our circumstances, but He will change them after He changes us sufficiently. That's one of the things that Thomas Boston hammers home in, in the crook in the lot. You know, we can't get out of it too soon. You know, we try all these ways to avoid or to get out of the affliction, that crook in the lot, that bend in the road, and there's nothing we can do to get out of it, and we will never get out of it until God releases us from it. And He does that when He has accomplished it, the, the purpose for which He designed it has been accomplished. So, um, the work I'm talking about is not trying to get out of it. <laughs> The work that I'm talking about is being faithful in the midst of it, just like Joseph was faithful in the midst of it. Just as we see in 1 Peter 4, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, and if you're suffering, you are suffering according to God's will, brothers and sisters, let them entrust their souls to their faithful Creator while doing good. Peter is saying, don't sit there and have the perpetual pity party. Trust God, do good. And that's what we see modeled in the life of Joseph. He was trusting God and doing good. It is possible for us, because we believe in Christ, because His Spirit is at work in us, because He works in us to will and act according to His good purpose, we are able to trust and do good. I believe that. Because Scripture testifies to it. That's what we're to be doing in the midst of our trial. And so dreams, those dreams, those often confusing things that happen in the middle of the night, they often reveal our fears and insecurities. But here we see God accommodating himself to Egyptian culture to reveal the future to two people. The point isn't about the dreams. The point is about God. He is the one who sustained Joseph during his unjust prison term. He is the one who controls our future. He is the one who works to change us while we wait for him to change our circumstances. God is not patient. Sorry, God is patient. He's not hurrying. He's accomplishing his great purposes for us in Christ. And so will you rest in that knowledge of his loving care Will you trust Him to bring good out of the bad? And will you do good in the midst of it? Let's pray. Father, the uh, the life of Joseph is incredibly comforting in many ways, knowing that there is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still that there's no situation that we find ourselves in that you cannot reach and hold us and save us. And yet, we also find a great challenge there that scares us, that is hard for us, that can only be done with the grace of Jesus Christ, and that is not only to trust you, but to continue to do good in the midst of these hardships that we experience. 
And so we ask that you would continue to reshape us when we find ourselves in that, between that rock and a hard place. That uh, we would become, be made more fit for you because it's your work, not ours. Help us to rely on the reality of Christ's work in us precisely because he has worked for us in his death, obedience, and resurrection. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.